Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome back to episode 305 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali, and I'm excited that you're joining us today. I wanted to take a moment to thank those of you who posted or reshared the news about what's happening inside Iran in the last eight weeks now. Thousands of Iranian women have been arrested and many of them killed by security forces inside Iran. They're fighting against compulsory hijab and systematic oppression. They're saying we had enough. Many of them are younger than 18. It's a movement for many of these girls are middle schooler, high schoolers, and they they want to have freedom. So if you want to support them, it's going to be great if you share about, tweet about, write about what's happening inside Iran. You can just reshare our stories. I get lots of video clips from women inside Iran because of the Iranian and Farsi show that I do. And you can just reshare those news because Islamic Republic of Iran, they want to control the narrative. And it's really important for women who are fighting these fights to be able to get their voices also heard. I also have an announcement that I wanted to share with you guys. We are opening the enrollment for our workshop, Seven Tactics for Achieving Optimal Performance Without Medication. We opened the enrollment for this three months ago, and it was such a successful launch we had. So if you are a penis owner, this is for you. In this workshop, I teach you seven psychological proven technique to drive your partner wild. I'm going to teach you the tactics that will help you gain control over your ejaculation. I'm going to teach you how you can maintain and get a firm erection. There will be an opportunity for 30 minutes live question and answer. So you can just show up live for the seminar or Alternatively, you can email me your questions and send me your questions and I'll answer every single question that people send me prior to the workshop. If for any reason you cannot show up for the workshop live, you will have access to the recording for the rest of your life. So you can just sign up. There, We have two dates for it. And if you can show up for those dates, you can just watch the video and send me your questions. Uh, the link for the registration is in the show notes. Today I'm going to talk about erectile dysfunction and the research about what gets in the way of men getting the help that they need? What are some of the barriers? What can you do to address those? My guest is Dr. Stephen Foster. He published a very interesting study in this to- on this topic. And we're going to talk about his research and we're going to talk about some of the experiences he had with clients and with participants who are struggling with this issue, but they're not getting the support that they need. Dr. Stephen Foster is a social psychologist at Penn State York. 
His academic work is primarily centered around the intersection of culture, stigma, and health behaviors, including vaccine attendance, screening attendance, and various forms of help seeking. Other research interests include conflict resolution in relationships, sexual function, and subjective socioeconomic status. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Stephen Foster. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. Today we're going to talk about the research around seeking help around sexual health challenges. And it's my honor to welcome Dr. Stephen Foster to our show. Dr. Foster, welcome to our show. Good afternoon. Good morning. It's good to be here. I'm really happy to chat about this very interesting topic with you and share some info that I have personally with uh, your audience. Well, I know that your background is in social psychology and you're a social psychologist. So tell us, how did you get interested in doing this research? Yeah, that's a good question. When, when I started off in the social psychology realm, I was in a very different area of my personal research. And I kind of stumbled across these concepts of you know masculinity, femininity, and understanding how they influence behaviors that I considered to be important to me. So it really began talking about mental health help seeking. And that really branched out into learning more about other types of help seeking that all have you know very consistent types of predictors and the factors that predispose us to being a little bit hesitant to seek out certain services. So when I got kind of led down this path, I was like, man, this is a, a really interesting topic, one that a lot of people have, you know, either personal experience or, or know somebody or in relationships and would like to know more about this topic. So I, I think it's very relevant. And I, I like to kind of center my work around things that are at least meaningful to people in, in some format. Well, you know, when I came across your paper, I, I was like so excited about it because it was talking about what gets in the way of people getting the help that they need? So in this day and age, for many of the sexual health challenges, we have very strong research-based approaches that can people implement and see results. But still, there's just so many barriers for people to reach out and get the help that they need. So I know that in this particular paper, you talked about erectile dysfunction and the focus was penis owners. So tell us how did you how did you guys define erectile dysfunction? Where did you get the people? Yeah, so this in this study we were looking very broadly at kind of this this broader conceptual format of masculinity, which we call culture of honor. And it's essentially the the idea is that it's it's masculinity on on steroids, so to speak. It's you know a very, very uh, strong emphasis on maintaining a reputation of strength and toughness for men and virility is, is tied into that. And so we were interested in exploring whether or not, in this case, you have a situation where if a person who's an honor endorser is experiencing erectile dysfunction in some way, the, the logical thing would be that they would go and seek help, right? Because if you, you fix this problem, then it allows you then to you know, restore your virility and continue forward as an honorable man, so to speak. But in our study, we were taking the perspective that the, the social ramifications of admitting or or even admitting to yourself that you might have a problem with virility or sexual sexual function might keep men from seeking out help in, in these areas. So uh, we collected a bunch of information across different levels of analysis, and we got some kind of converging evidence for what we thought was going to go on. And at the individual level, we found that both young and old men were more likely to say that they would never seek out medication 
reinforce any sort of help-seeking support for erectile dysfunction. And this is particularly high amongst men who strongly endorse these honor norms. Aside from that, we found this in men who were currently experiencing erectile dysfunction. So we, we use the IIEF scale, which is a, a very straightforward measure of erectile function. And it essentially asks, are you able to get an erection, to maintain an erection during intercourse, all the way through to completion? Uh, questions along those lines. And what I always find very interesting is we, we ask men these questions. And you had some men who were scoring, you know, pretty low in terms of erectile function. But then when we asked them about subjectively, we said, do you have any erectile function issues? They were telling us no. And it just really spoke to us that clearly when it comes down to what people are actually reporting, uh, there, there is some hesitancy there. And on the, the broader kind of national level, we had an outcome variable that was linked to the proportion of prescriptions for erectile dysfunction in each state. And this was essentially a proxy for if, if men in honor states, uh, which in this case we kind of conceptualize as the southern and western U.S., Men in those states are really concerned about their reputation and don't want others to know that they're they're seeking out help. They shouldn't be uh, these prescriptions should be lower in those states, and that is what we found after controlling for a, a bunch of other statewide covariates. So you know, I, I considered it pretty interesting and also somewhat alarming that people are, and this is a consistent theme across the health psych literature, is that people will do things that are actively against their best interests if there are overwhelming social pressures that play a role in pushing people away or towards behaviors. That is fascinating. And it's aligned with what I hear from my colleagues as well. I was doing a workshop, I was teaching a course on overcoming erectile dysfunction. And I was talking to my friends that they're female physicians and they say like how difficult it is for their male clients to ask even for the prescription. One of my friends, she was saying, as we're always when wrapping the door, opening the door up, they say, oh, can I get a prescription for this? So it's just so difficult for people to admit that there is a challenge and ask for help. And it's a common challenge that most people have. At some, some point in their life, people have some issues around erectile unpredictability, erectile worries, or erectile dysfunction. And thank God there, there just has been so many advancements in the field. It can, people, it can help people to have the sexual experiences that they wanted. How did you guys, I'm kind of curious that, that you've, you found this men that are scoring higher in the honorable category, like this internalized concept of masculinity. What are some of the characteristics of these individuals? Yeah, so that's a good question. The uh, the honor literature is actually began in a, a little bit of a different area, and it was primarily centered around how a deep sense of concern for one's reputation might play a role in predicting lots of outcomes. So the, the original research was all about aggression and essentially showing that if men believe that they need to maintain a reputation of strength and toughness and being seen as kind of a, a big manly man in the eyes of their peers, then when they feel threatened in some way, they'll they'll lash out with aggression. And I always found this uh, a very interesting literature. And where I kind of ended up taking it was saying, well, first of all, you know, we know that women in cultures of honor have certain norms that they need to uphold as well. And so some of my other research kind of deals in that realm, including with some sexual health outcomes. But the the masculinity side, the, what we were kind of diving into was, you know, to what lengths will people go in order to defend their social reputation? And although this means we, we kind of decided you have this one group of behaviors, which is approach behaviors, right? Doing stuff to actively show that you're honorable. 
But then the flip side of that, that wasn't really investigated as much was the kind of avoidance behaviors. Like, what do you, what do you not do in order to ensure that your, your honor isn't damaged in some way? So help seeking is a great example of broadly speaking, something that men just don't feel comfortable doing because it, it admits some form of reliance on others. A huge piece that's kind of coming out now is the role that, that self-reliance plays in cultures of honor. So, you know, these, if you, uh, to kind of broaden the perspective, obviously we're talking here about, you know, people in the Southern and Western states of the U.S., but we're also talking about other areas of the world, including uh, the Mediterranean, the Middle East, Spain. I mean, there's, there's lots of places that these cultures emerged really where there was an environment of, at least initially, relative lawlessness and resource scarcity. So in these cases, your reputation was what kind of allowed you to survive. Those norms have been perpetuated over many years. And I always give the example to my students of thinking of Clint Eastwood in the wild, wild west. That's a perfect example of why this sort of culture emerged, right? To to keep people safe. Your reputation was what stood there for you when you weren't around. But now it's like we're all living in cities and we're all you know, living in a, in a very different culture, but the norms are still there. And that's kind of the general approach that we see for a lot of this literature now. Fascinating. And I also hear it's a spectrum. You definitely know more than me. And on one, one part are these kind of like subtle things of like not asking for help or not kind of like avoiding doing certain things. And in the more extreme one, we can see like honor killing. I know that I'm part of the camp campaign for honor killing for women in Middle East, which is horrible. And I feel very passionate about, but I know right now we're not talking about those, those people. We're talking about people who want help. They're just not seeking the help. In your research, did you guys looked into the category of the people who had those internalized beliefs and they something shifted and they were able to ask for help. So I guess like what can be motivate people to work through this barrier? It's a really good question. And, and actually a lot of this stuff that we've been dealing with specifically with men is trying to create some sort of a formalized campaign that you can use that taps into these ideas and will convince men that they are not being uh, damaged in some way by asking for help. And unfortunately in our study on ED, we didn't really find a lot of those predictive factors within our study, but just some stuff that we we know is is useful, at least some stuff that's emerging right now in the masculinity literature. One of the the best ways to get men to be able to engage with help seeking is really talking in their language. For men who are really concerned about being seen as, you know, either hyper masculine or strong or self-reliant, one approach I've been I've been kind of trying to incorporate in it more of a research design is discussing how help seeking is more of a, a tool belt that people can access as a way to fix problems, right? So one of the traditional masculine traits is assertiveness and you know being seen as useful. And so in, in a sense, you're you're asking somebody to, I guess you could argue, damage their reputation a little bit by seeking help, but then also reaffirming them in another level. So at the end of the day, men can seek help and still feel like they're maintaining part of their masculine reputation. We also know that there's some age effects for this. The, the effects of honor on certain help-seeking outcomes, they, they tend to actually be a little bit worse as people get older. So when things are getting worse and worse and men are grappling with the fact that they are having kind 
kind of diminishing capabilities, either sexually or physically. Something like 70% of men who are over the age of 70 have some form of erectile dysfunction, right? So it's a, it's a really high percentage of people. And that can be embarrassing or you know damaging to the self-concept of a lot of men. And so getting older men to be able to engage with these sorts of medications or these treatments, that, that's something that's going to be able to reach out to a lot of people. So we hope that we can have something more formalized in the literature shortly that will, we can intervene in these situations. Well, it's wonderful that you're doing this work. And this is something I've experienced clinically, but I don't know about the general population in a kind of systematic way that you know. Is it easier for people, like there are a number of different things for health, like a lack of health seeking kind of qualities and abilities. Is it harder when it comes to sex or it's easier? So in comparison with other types of help seeking, we we find a lot of consistency across the board. And it's, it's starting to seem like no matter what the topic is, men consistently in comparison with women are less likely to help seek. The difference is that for sexual behavior, men's sexuality, oftentimes in traditional forms, their heterosexuality is a very central piece of manhood. And being seen as the a person who has the ability to engage in sexual conquest, who has the ability to father lots of children, all of these things are, at least in the research we do, they're closely tied in with what it means to be an honorable man. And uh, I know some of that sounds a little bit far-fetched, but we just actually ran a pilot study that was looking at the role that children play in these beliefs for men and for women. And and honor endorsers typically agree that, you know, having lots of kids shows that you are capable and you're able to do that. So I think with sexual behavior, it's particularly close to home. And it also has a lot of other sorts of implications tied to it, right? If a person on the outside were to see that you were seeking help for erectile dysfunction, uh, it might also not just say, yes, this person is having some physical issues at this point. It might also indicate that you're not performing with your, your spouse, your partner. Partner, that's also a sense of damage, right? There's also a sense of you uh, having to be self-reliant on or reliant on other people, kind of deviating away from self-reliance. So I think it's because it's multi multifaceted and there's there's a lot of implications tied to it that men are kind of subconsciously aware of that. And that's why it's so difficult to get men to engage in even discussions about sexual health, just in general. And if I, I think that there's, there is one thing to ask for help. I think there's going to be also an additional steps to completing the treatment, right? Whether it's coming to therapy or taking the, filling the prescription, taking the prescription, all of that are just like an added complexity to what gets in the way of people having kind of experiencing happiness. And I think that's that is just like, again, that's a fact that many people of all ages at times they struggle. And going back to what you were talking about earlier, that because of this honor culture, other men are not talking about it. And people think about I'm the only one who struggles with this. Well, in, in, in reality, there's just so many people that you know, they're struggling with it and they're not talking about it. As far as like the studies or treatment, I wonder that do you have you noticed or do you think that there might be more comfortable asking help from same gender or to someone with a different gender? That's actually a, a really good question. And we are we're trying to dive into what the actual kind of clinical situations are that can maybe help men in order to, to help seek. Now, obviously, like you said, the, the first part of it is getting them to actually go to see a doctor. 
right? But we have this, this weird inkling that there's a possibility as well that clinicians who are uh, strong endorsers of this honor culture, they might also be less likely to bring up these topics to patients. And I know that we assume, obviously, that clinicians are, are superhuman and uh, they kind of rise above a lot of these uh, biases and these preferences, but that's not the case. You know, clinicians are, are human as well. And they, uh, so we have this, this kind of thought that's been rolling around our heads that says, you know, it's possible that certain doctors don't feel necessarily comfortable with bringing up some of these topics to their uh, their patients. And, you know, obviously we don't want that, right? But if it's something that's happening, then you might find that, for example, same gender, I'm thinking a, a male patient and a male doctor, you might have some issues with discussion, discussing these topics and in really having an open discussion about it. On the flip side, it's very possible that men feel particularly embarrassed having these discussions around women, right? So we, we don't have a, a clear answer on that yet, but part of the, the issue is getting access to doctors to see what sort of attitudes they hold and the likelihood that they would uh, lead somebody down a path that, that kind of gets them towards this treatment and how they would feel about that. And there, there are so many different components that plays into a physician or a psychologist, a doctor or a therapist asking about sexual health. I had this conversation a lot with my colleagues. And part of it is people feel that I don't know what are the resources. Like if I, like I'm asking, I'm a general therapist and I'm asking for how is your sexual health? And they say something and I don't know what to treat it. What should I do with that? Because like people oftentimes they get minimal information about sex therapy in kind of graduate school or physicians at times, as you said, they're kind of, they have their own discomfort about it and they feel, okay, I, I'm not comfortable asking about this. Or if they say something, where, where should I go and where should I refer to them, the clients? So I think that calls an issue as well. And I think people can notice the discomfort, right? It's uncomfortable conversation. If the provider is uncomfortable, the client is uncomfortable, <laughs> it's going to be hard to have a good open communication. But I think it's also important that practice assertiveness, the same wonderful assertive kind of like qualities that people have other aspects of their life, kind of like practicing it to get the care that they need. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge issue is we, we think that the way these norms are passed down to others is it's not just that a person says, no, you shouldn't do that. Or I don't like it when you do this behavior. And that's not a manly behavior, right? But it is those sort of subconscious things. And that's what makes this so difficult to, to take apart is, you know, when you act or when you do a certain behavior and the response is more so, well, uh, okay, I, I'm okay with you doing that. Like even saying in an affirmative that you're okay with your partner seeking out help or with a friend, if you bring it up, it's that nonverbal response that people give that says, oh, I'm aware that that made them uncomfortable, right? Um, and so I think with, with clinicians, obviously, that's a little bit difficult to tackle. But part of it is just being exposed to more and more of these types of discussions, being aware of the, the normalcy of these behaviors. And I think that for clinicians who, I don't have any data to back this up, but for clinicians who are engaging with a higher proportion of older men in their kind of clientele, uh, my guess is that they have a, a much easier job when it comes to discussing these issues, um, simply because it's a normative aspect of a lot of who they're treating on a daily basis. Absolutely. And again, for people, if it is a lack of resource, you can just have like the number of the different resources that you can pull out and, and give to people so they know where to go and uh, what to do if they're struggling, if they are looking for support and help around 
these things. Was there other findings in your study that we haven't talked about? Um, so that research actually really started to build off into other areas as well. And I think one thing I wanted to note was, um, you know, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware, there's a lot of sources that go into the kind of production of erectile dysfunction in the first place. And one of my approaches in my research was to try and understand the more of the day-to-day -day lived experiences that lead up to this sort of a clinical event, right? And uh, a lot of people think it's just, oh, this happens with old age and it's strictly about physical outcomes. Um, but we know that there's a huge psychological component for, for men uh, having erectile dysfunction. And a lot of men who are having these sorts of issues, it really stems from lack of effective communication with partners, feeling discomfort, feeling even just a day-to-day -day mood fluctuation, right? Things that we don't really talk about a lot openly with men. And this actually ended up leading to a lot of other research regarding emotional suppression and expression in relationships, where we basically found that on a day-to-day -day basis, it seems that honor endorsers, men, they're, they're not opening up emotionally to their partners and really to anyone about things that, that are distressing to them. And although we didn't connect this directly to erectile dysfunction, my impression is that a lot of these factors go into the slow buildup of, you know, I feel, I feel out of place in my own life. I feel like I don't have an emotional connection with my partner. I'm not able to connect with others in the way that seems meaningful to me. And, and that's where a lot of these psychological sources come from. So ultimately, we found this stuff when it came to both younger and older men in our initial study. But I do think there's implications outside of this in a lot of different sort of predisposing areas. Absolutely. And there are so many different reasons that, as you mentioned, can lead to someone to have struggles with getting an erection, maintaining it. But I think uh, as as we talked about earlier, it's common for people, first of all, to their erection to get uh, more firm or less firm during an encounter. And when we have those like unhelpful limiting beliefs about what does it mean to be a man, then that like when that happens, the panics kicks in and people might not be able to calm themselves and reduce the stress and that it creates the panic for future. And it's just not talking to their partner, as you mentioned, is so important because that can take off the pressure and misunderstanding. What I see in my clinical practice is that sometimes people avoid having sex with their partner because they're scared of not being able to get an erection. And then their female partner, these are heterosexual couples I'm talking about, that their female partner feels rejected, that like my partner doesn't want to be with me. But in reality, the issue is something we can completely, relatively easy to fix. And I tell people, like, regardless of what is the underlying issue this day and age with all this psychological advancement, medical advan advancement, you will be able to have satisfying experiences uh, regardless. So I think it's important for people to think about that. And I think it's also kind of builds intimacy, emotional intimacy, when you're able to be open and vulnerable with your partner. H have you looked in your study? You might not have had that study, but for couples that they both coming from those backgrounds and culture, when they open up to their partner, is it well received or it's an, it's an indicator of the weakness? That's a, a good question. And, and we actually have a, a study that's currently in um, unpublished format that looks at uh, all sorts of sexual outcomes. And uh, one of the, the aspects of that was trying to understand basically what you're getting at was within relationships, in terms of sexual satisfaction, in terms of the 
sexual self-efficacy. Like, do you feel like you're capable of, of performing sexually with your partner? We wanted to see if people who endorse these norms more strongly, both men and women, might have some detriments in those areas. And we did find that that both men and women, they, they seem to be lower in these scales of kind of sexual communication. So although we don't know if the stigma of that sort of opening up is playing the, the kind of primary facilitating factor in that, it does seem like uh, these individuals are, are having difficulty with having a clear communication across the board. Now, that could very well be that for women, that their male partners simply aren't talking about things ever. It could also mean that this is this goes both ways. And there's some more research that suggests both men and women in terms of these honor cultures have, have a little bit more overlap than we thought they did before. This is partially because of changing values and norms about femininity just in general. But uh, it seems like there, there could be something going on that both men and women are, are having difficulty kind of bridging that gap. And I, I do agree that with all the literature on how communication helps to boost sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction, we really do want to promote that in, in couples if, that, if that's possible. I agree with you. And I, I tell people when they come to my practice is where, where, where did you learn about sex? Like and most people from conservative cultures and communities, they never seen a, like their parents being affectionate. They don't have any template of that type of communication, close, intimate communication that we're talking about here. So it's, it's hard to be able to relate differently with your partner. So it requires lots of effort, which is absolutely worth it. But I can see that that can be a challenge for people if they're not pausing and reflecting on that. So I'm very curious. So you said you did research on women and all honor culture and sexual health. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What have you noticed with that population? Yeah, of course. That's actually, I, I'm been spending a lot of my time in that area. Although I do love the research on masculinity, it is nice to switch gears a little bit and look at the, the flip side of this. And uh, a lot of the, the original research on women was, was pretty lacking in cultures of honor. It was kind of viewed that they were passive members of this culture who just kind of got all the bad outcomes thrown at them when it comes to, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the most extreme being honor killings. And I'm not uh, minimizing those outcomes uh, at all. But uh, my perspective was that there, it seems that women in cultures of honor do also care deeply about their reputations. And we started off by asking the question, what does that actually mean for women? We found that honor-endorsing women were more likely to uh, be really uh, deeply concerned about being seen as sexually pure, being seen as loyal, but also this, this sense of being strong as well. They didn't want to be walked all over. They wanted to be able to stand up for themselves. And so we, we have a few studies that are out there right now that kind of deal with this more in the traditional aggression sense. But as for sexual health, we were really interested in how this prevents women from seeking out certain screenings and certain certain vaccinations. So we started off looking at HPV vaccination. And what we found was that honor endorsing women, they were less likely to have ever gotten the HPV vaccine, and they were less likely to recommend getting the vaccine for their daughters. And this was uh, explained by this mediating factor, which was a belief that by getting the vaccine, you're admitting that you're sexually promiscuous. And when you talk about that to, uh, to people, they go, that's, that's ridiculous, right? That, that doesn't make any sense. Like, obviously, we're trying to keep women safe 
by uh, having them very early on get this vaccine. But it's again, it's really about the, the, the social reputation that's tied. To, and I always tell people, think about going into your circle of other moms or other family members and openly saying that you just had your daughter vaccinated for HPV. And just think about how you and your peers would feel or receive that. And usually at that point, you get people saying, oh, I can imagine that this person maybe wouldn't respond too positively to that. Or, you know, I would feel a little bit ashamed, right? And, and that's not to say that that's going to stop everyone. But if you do have those reactions, it is reflective of some beliefs that might be floating around your circle. And that could be enough to keep you from going out and pursuing those actives. So we, we extended that research out to uh, similar sorts of effects with STI screenings, women not seeking out uh, getting tested, even if they're having symptoms, because they don't want to admit in some way that they have been sexually active with, uh, with the partner. So th there's lots of other implications of this that we're kind of currently exploring. But I think those are those are some of the big ones right now that we've tapped into. Fascinating. I my listeners they know that. So I'm Iranian American, and Farsi is my first language. So I have a Farsi show talking about sexual health, and I'm talking about the same thing I'm talking here. But apparently in that show, it's very controversial <laughs> because of the culture. And I get a lot of questions from women and mothers asking about HPV vaccines. And if I take my daughter to take HPV vaccine, do I give her in a way permission to have sex? Or many women telling me that they go to their gynecologist, primary doctor in Iran, and they saying that like, oh, you don't need a vaccine because you're not having sex. Kind of assuming they're unmarried, you don't need vaccine, which is like mind blowing to me coming from a health professional. So it's just these systems of oppressions are just so strong and some um, unfortunately sometimes uh, very pervasive yeah and that's that's exactly i mean i, I don't want to say that i feel very validated by that uh that statement that you just made but a, a lot of the the research was it, it kind of it doesn't address oftentimes uh women's health issues in the same way that men's health issues are addressed uh in the research and and there's a lot of reasons why that might be the case but i think that these implicit assumptions we make about women's behavior that plays a role and you know just recently we We've been doing work on uh, you know the stigma of miscarriage and the stigma of abortion, and um, in these in these uh, areas, you find that the literature is like surprisingly lacking. There's just there's not a lot there, and the only stuff you do find is qualitative research that just has very very small focus groups talking to women about their experiences and. And as a psychologist who's, you know, really steeped in empirical data all the time, I try to tell my students that, you know, go to go to the women in your family, go to the women that you know and ask them, what is your what is your actual experience? I say that you can you can never be wrong in your research if you go and you ask somebody and they tell you, I had this experience and I felt this way. And I am sure in those cases that they're not the only one who had that experience. So I think by asking those questions of, of women, especially women who are from these types of cultures, you're going to get a representation of what's actually going on. And it's not this, what I consider to be this more stereotypical, traditional view of how women are rep represented oftentimes in the psychology literature. So I, I think we're moving in the right direction, but there's definitely still work to be done. In, in those areas. Absolutely. And I find that for some reason I get more or I'm focused more on women in, in, in my show and kind of sexual empowerment work that I do in my Farsi show. It's very helpful for people to see other women that are doing this. Like, okay, I'm vaccinating my child or I've done STI testing. People that they can see themselves in. 
So thinking about, okay, so this person is doing it, that is okay, then maybe I can take that step. So I think that that's, that's been helpful for people that I see. What about men? So if, if you have audience members that they notice that they have this characteristics, this hesitation, but they want to change that, like a part of it that's no longer served them. So I bet that they're a part of it that serves them in the past, but now they're, they want to uh, update the version of what masculinity is. Where can they go? What would be the first step? Very good question. And I think the first thing to for men to remember is that uh, kind of what you just hinted at, which is that masculinity is it's socially constructed, right? So it's all about starting to initiate yourself into spheres of different versions of what masculinity is. And I think that one of the big issues is men see one form of masculinity their entire lives because they never go out and check out these other pockets of space. And so for specifically in, in the health area, I would say I would frame your health more so in a sense that's reaffirming to important aspects of of masculinity that that do serve you. And for, for most men, the feeling of being in control of your own health is something that's relatively pervasive and I would argue is is beneficial almost across the board. We want people to be advocates for themselves in the doctor's office. We want there to be a conversation between clinicians and their patients. So you can you can basically say to men, look, you're you're taking your health into your own hands. Don't let the random chance basically steer your life uh, without you having control over it. And I think um, that's a good step to start building this this sort of confidence and you know as much as a as men maybe like to say that they're they're highly confident in their engagements with their clinicians and with uh, the people in their medical world um there's a lot of, of fear as there is with uh, women as well in terms of what I, i'm afraid of what the outcomes might be if i do this i'm afraid and honesty the the ability to be able to bring those up to the surface i think are important and once men start to learn that there's there's not major social ramifications in these spheres for those behaviors it starts to become easier and easier to to open up about these things um, to discuss them with peers family members and ultimately if you can build a peer group that has a more receptive view of this uh, we tend to say that in kind of like the friendship literature you, you don't need a hundred friends that are all really close to you to feel supported you need a few good ones, right? Um, so finding those spheres where you can be in control of your health, be in control of, you know, and taking your future and your health in your own hands, uh, that can be supported very easily by having just a few like-minded individuals who uh, are important to you. And so find the people, find your people, men out there, find your people who can, uh, you know, allow you to live a long, healthy life and continue to contribute and support your family members in the way that I know most men want to. Amazing. I think uh, that's such a great invitation for people, like finding the tribe of people that they're working toward the goal that you're having. And at times I find it that I tell people that with changing these scripts, it can change future generations. Maybe you struggled in doing things yourself and you want something different from your for, for your children and you, you're learning the skills in this new tribe and family that you're cultivating. So we're toward the end of our time. I love all the wonderful work that you're doing. So where can people get a hold of you? So you can contact me directly at any question, at any point, if you have any questions or concerns at sfoster at psu.edu. You can uh, get any more information you want from me there regarding kind of the Stigma Lab stuff that we're doing. I'm doing lots of different wings of research all at once. And of course, you can always keep an eye out on the, the academic spheres for my research coming out. But yeah, I, I hope to be able to be doing more of these sorts of engagements and getting more of the word out there. But I, I do think there's a growing wave of interest 
in the honor literature and, and this intersection with health. So yeah, I hope to continue to contribute along those, uh, those realms as much as possible. Well, thank you for your time. It was lovely to have you on our show. I hope you guys found our conversation meaningful. Life is too short to have boring, not exciting, disappointing sexual experiences. If you have something in your bucket list, if there are things that you want to improve, make sure you're taking steps to get the help that you need today. I know we talked about some of the common challenges that gets in the way of people getting the support that they need and how that can impact their quality of life. So my invitation for you is if you want to change things in your sex life, do something about it today. My invitation for all the penis owners who are listening to this show and they want to improve their sex life, I invite you to sign up for our workshop. In the workshop, we're going to talk about how you can maintain or get a firm erection. We're going to talk about ejaculatory control. We're going to talk about how you can drive your partner wild. Also, we have a couple of fun bonuses for people who are taking the workshop. You can attend it live or you can listen to the recorded one. If you're curious about the workshop, make sure you're heading to our show notes and going to the link and check out the sales page. All right, I'll see you next week right here. And thank you so much for listening to our show. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.